Lovely to be here. Apparently, if the sun was just to turn off, just like that, ooh, I'm squeaking, if it was just to turn off, eight minutes, 20 seconds later, we'd notice we'd be in darkness. Instantly, green plants would no longer be able to make food through photosynthesis, so the whole, whole food chain would collapse. Within, I've got, I've got to get this right now, within one week, the warmest temperature in the world would be minus 18 degrees. Unless you're on a thermal nuclear submarine, you'd be dead within three weeks. We need the sun. We need light. Life and light was God's original gift to us, which we read of in Genesis 1. And just the same way as the physical world needs light, and spiritually, we need light. We need to make Jesus number one in our lives. Timothy Keller writes, The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are in this holy dance of light and life. And life and light should be qualities of us when we follow Jesus. Is this going to work? Yay! Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And in the same way as the moon reflects the light source, the sun, we're called to reflect Jesus' light and life. And we do this not for ourselves. We do this for God's glory. So what does it mean to shine? I've got three little things I came up with first. It means, first of all, to be counter-cultural. We live in a dark world. You only have to turn the news on to see that, of lies and hate and confusion, etc. In Romans 13, 12, Paul writes, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness. We're called to be different. Second of all, it means putting ourselves out there in the community, friends, family. Jesus said, let your light shine before others. Whether we're timid or whether we're outgoing, we're called to be a light to people around us. And that's only possible if we take time to interact with people and cultivate relationships. And thirdly, it's about reflecting and always pointing back to Jesus, the light source. Jesus said, let your light shine before others. But he didn't stop there. He gave a reason why. And the reason why he goes in Matthew 5, 16 is, so that your good works can be seen by others and they give glory to God. Our goal is not recognition for ourselves, but glory for God. So the question today is, are we shining as we should be? And I'm asking myself that question as well. Recently, someone got engaged, who I know, and oh my goodness, did we all hear about the ring? So, and also, the, the kind of the poses, this sort of thing, <laughs> all these sort of things. I won't say if it's a female or a male. It was a female. And they were doing this, showing, and you could see it from every angle, but it was a beautiful ring. It was beautiful. Really reflected. But have you ever noticed over time, if we don't kind of maintain those kind of engagement rings, etc., dust settles on, it becomes dull, it becomes dull. And in the same way, sin, missing the mark with God, can dull our lights for Jesus. Our lives, which once sparkled with the joy of Christ, can become clouded with the love of other stuff. And I want to argue today that one of the reasons why we sometimes don't shine as we should 
is because we get despondent. And we get despondent because we've got the wrong idea of what it means to follow Jesus. An idea that I will argue is profoundly unbiblical, but completely, continually is perpetuated. Let me show you this. In the, on um, August the 6th and August the 9th, two atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Millions, uh, well, up to half a million, two-thirds of a million deaths, mainly civilians. And it resulted in immediate regime change. It, it resulted in the end of the Imperial Japanese Army, the end of World War II in the Pacific. And it's really interesting, it sounds bizarre to us, eight years on. But at the time, people thought that was the end of the matter. And then five to eight years later, there were these terrible birth defects and all that sort of horrible stuff happened. When we become a Christian, we're basically acknowledging we're not right with God. We say Jesus is exactly who he says he is and we invite the Lord in. We sometimes say some sort of sinner's prayer, which you'll struggle to find in the Bible as such. And there's a regime change. We move from darkness to light. We might think we've got that golden ticket to heaven. And we're pumped up. We go, life is so good. And then over time, just like Hiroshima, five years later, sometime later, we start seeing stuff in our life which is counter to what we claim to follow and believe. We find stuff that we find really difficult to shift. We find ourselves making the same mistakes. And we get despondent. We can even start to doubt. Maybe we need to say that prayer again with more feeling. I've done that before. Or maybe we'll pretend that stuff isn't actually in our lives. Or maybe we've seen people quietly slip away from the faith. Because they don't want to be seen as hypocrites, or they see the Christian life as too difficult. And our light stops shining. Because we've got the wrong model. Prior to the dropping of the two um, um, atomic bombs, which I'm not condoning, um, a very different war happened in the Pacific, which involved the Americans slowly taking back the Pacific Islands, a huge number of Pacific Islands, and they had a strategy how they did it to slowly push back the Imperial Japanese Army. And what they were involved was the American Army getting a foothold on the island. And then once they got that, they would then fortify it and slowly push back. And over a prolonged period of time, the island would slowly be taken. I think it's a better model to bear in our minds. That when we become Christians, when we decide to follow Jesus, it's like Jesus has got a foothold in our life. Rather than seeing a sinner's prayer in the Bible, what we see is people repenting and then following. Following the way. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, So all of us that have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is a spirit, makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glorious image. Jesus gets a foothold in our life and then through the power of the Holy Spirit areas of our life are revealed which are not in keeping with who's in charge. The process is called sanctification. And as we journey with Jesus, his spirit will reveal more and more things in our life for us to sort out with his help. The new areas where Jesus needs to get footholds. So for example, cruel words, lying, stealing, materialism, pride. And over time, those are changed. But this process continues throughout our lives. 
we'll never fully get there this side of eternity. But we should be seeing ourselves moving from glory to glory. Areas are defeated, and with that, our lives shine. They reflect Jesus' glory. And instead of getting despondent when a new area is revealed to us, with God's help, it can be dealt with, and we move on to the next. It's a completely different way of seeing things. And this isn't about condemnation, a general feeling that we're a failure. God says, you are his masterpieces. Rather, this is about us being transformed from glory to glory. Sometimes the killer one is that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us good things which have become ultimate things. In other words, Jesus is no longer number one. And we can centre our lives around really good things, but they shouldn't be ultimate. We can centre our life around our spouse, but there'll be a tendency if we do that to become emotionally dependent, jealous or controlling. We can centre our life around our family. Well, if we do that, we might start to live our lives through our children until they resent us. They will let us down and we will certainly let them down. We might centre our life around work and our career. But we'll become driven workaholics. And maybe a bit boring as well in the process. We could centre our life on money and possessions and become materialistic warriors. We could centre our life on pleasure and end up with addictions. We could centre our life on relationships and approval and be continually stung by criticism. Fear of confronting others and therefore in a process become a bit of a useless friend. We could even centre our life on a noble cause and divide the world into good and evil and demonise one half. Or we could centre our life on religion and morality with the danger of becoming proud and self-righteous or failing to live up to our own high standards and getting terrible guilt. We were made to centre our lives on Jesus in all his abundance and we will shine in that The other thing we can do sometimes is we can think we've arrived. We can think we've we've got there. Everything's sorted. God then sometimes pulls back and shows us just how big the island is. The island is a bit larger than what we thought. And we continue that journey with Jesus. I'm convinced that the longer we follow Jesus, and I'm sure many of you can testify to this, the more we realise how amazing God's grace is for us. Who's doing the work? Paul answers in Philippians. He says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God will do the work, but we need to. It's a paradox. We must work, God works. And it's really good for us to reflect on how we're doing especially this time of the year as we start a new year and about to start a new year but we tend to do it via comparison or at least I do now I used to be I used to be in school management and one of the jobs I used to do in school management if I can click on this whoops wrong way is I had to look at attainment so attainment was I worked in upper primary school so seven year olds to eleven and one of my jobs was to collect all the results about how the children were doing at a certain fixed point in time, normally May, before they went to secondary school. And the government had something called age-related expectations. This was what I was aiming for. I was aiming for that point. 
And I would plot the children laboriously in my kind of office. And pupil A, I'd be very, very pleased with. They had exceeded government expectations. That was due to good school management. However, pupil B had not reached age expectations. That was normally due to teaching, by the way. They had not reached it. Don't we sort of do this sort of comparison? I would compare the children. Don't we do that as Christians sometimes? The trouble is that God's standard is perfection. It's all about grace. It is all about grace. So when I'm down here and I find someone who I think is there and I stop feeling quite superior about it, isn't that ridiculous? Isn't it about God working in us? His grace he gives us? It reminds me of X Factor, which I don't watch, I promise, on Saturdays. But X Factor is this horrible program on Saturdays, or you might enjoy it, where people sing and they might get a record contract. And sometimes people go on who've got no idea of their musical ability, i.e. it's shocking. And um, what they've done is they've compared themselves to other family members who are either very rose-tinted glasses or even worse. And they start singing and they sound like strangled sheep, etc., And then Simon Cowell, one of the judges, tells them very rudely how bad they are. And they look shocked. That's what it's like when we compare ourselves to other people. That's what it's like. It's all about God's grace. He takes us how we are, but he doesn't want us to stay as we are. He sees us as beautiful people with a terrible problem. But there's only one thing you remember about this talk. Remember, not a single sin, not a single shortcoming is a match for his grace. Back to school management. Let's talk about achievement instead. I always thought you could divide teachers into those who looked at attainment and those who looked at achievement. Another word for achievement is progress. So we've got there the attainment, but the achievement was there's an expectation that during primary school, a child from year three, seven years old, to 11-year-old would make that sort of progress. And you've got a much more interesting picture when you did that. Because we look at people A, we wouldn't even call that coasting. we call that regressing. The child, my star pupil, who's doing so well, actually is worse than they were three years ago. And you would sometimes see that. While pupil B was making incredible progress. They just started from a lower point. Who was a pupil who I used to go home at the end of the year feeling proud of and feeling kind of just what a great job they did? Who, who was a pupil who was inspiring? It was pupil B, not pupil A. You see, going back to the Pacific Islands, the important bit isn't how big our island is and how much stuff is on it. The question is, are we progressing? Are we following Jesus? Are we moving from glory to glory? And my most blunt sentence of the whole talk, I promise, is when we look back on our Christian life, if we're not seeing progress, if we're not being transformed, something is wrong in our Christian lives. You see, when we're we're progressing, when we're teamed up with Jesus, we're on fire for him, we shine like stars. People see the difference. When we're not progressing, no matter how far down the journey we are, like people A here... It's like we've hit the buffers. It's like the the engagement ring that's got tarnished. Because a Christian life is about becoming more and more like Christ until the day you and I die. So how are we reflecting Jesus? I think the biggest challenge we hit, going back to the islands, 
is when we hit what I'm going to call signature sins. It's the stuff we really struggle with, and we've all got them. It might be we keep going back to it. It might be it feels too much effort. It might be that we gloss over it and pretend it's not there. If we're honest, it might sometimes be we love that more than we love Jesus. But I believe we've all got them, and we have battles with them. You'd be delighted to know I don't know what yours is. I know what mine are. But it might be as simple as Jesus isn't number one in our lives anymore. And just to wrap up, there's three lies we can believe, and these are lies. The first one we can believe, if I can get my rug to it, is we can believe it's not a big deal. I can keep going with it. It is a big deal. It's why Jesus died on the cross for us. The writer of Hebrews says in 12.1, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles. And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Second of all, we can believe we can't stop. It's too tricky for us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.13. It's a great verse to have up somewhere in your house. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When he attempted, he'll show you a way out so you can endure. What a promise to hold on to when you or I are tempted. And thirdly, we can believe it's too big. This is too big. The writer of Hebrews writes in 4.16, Let us boldly come to our gracious God. There we will receive mercy. And we will find grace to help us when we need it most. What a gracious God we follow. There's a real old school book, some of you might have heard of it, called In Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. It's a stunning book. You can pick it for 99p on eBay. But I'm just going to finish what he writes at the end. He says, God has provided all we need for our pursuit of holiness. He has delivered us from the reign of sin and given us his indwelling Holy Spirit. He's received his holy will for holy living in the Bible. And he works in us to will and to act to his good purpose. He answers our prayers when we cry out to him for strength and temptation. Truly, the choice is ours. Truly, the choice is ours. 